You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of nature-based solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Ida. And I'm Kate. Clara is the CEO of Restore. Before joining Restore, she worked in supply chain sustainability in Latin America, engaging large consumer goods companies, plantation owners, and smallholder farmers to design and implement solutions to protect forests and respect human rights. She's also worked in fishery management, youth development, and environmental education. In 2022, she was named the Google.org Leader to Watch. Clara was born in the U.S., grew up in Costa Rica, and after stints in Mexico and Cameroon, now lives in Switzerland, a true global citizen. She holds a bachelor's in biology and environmental studies from Amherst College and a master's in environmental management from the Yale School of the Environment. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. It's always mortifying when someone reads your bio out loud like that. <laughs> well, we are going to give you an opportunity to improve upon it, Clara. So, You've had such an interesting story and have held so many interesting posts in this ecosystem. We'd love to hear from your point of view. You know, tell us a little bit about your journey to where you got today and where your interest in natural climate solutions began. Yeah, of course. So I think probably like many people, my interest in the space very much comes from place and the places where I have spent time and the places where I've spent time in nature. So I was born in a really rural part of New Hampshire and as a very young kid moved with my family to Monteverde in Costa Rica, which is up in the cloud forest and is a place where conservation meets agriculture and increasingly over the course of my childhood met more and more tourism and development. And so loving the natural world, thinking about the ways in which human communities and natural communities interact um, has always been a piece of, of me and wanting to be a part of doing that in respectful ways, thoughtful ways, responsible and kind of long-term ways just was built into how I grew up. And so how did you get from the cloud forests of Monteverde to Restore? Yeah, it's been a very windy journey, I would say. I studied, uh, as you mentioned, biology and environmental studies um, in college, and I had the opportunity to study in savanna ecosystems and ocean ecosystems. I ended up working in fishery management in Mexico just after graduating from college and really thinking through tragedy of the common types issues. What does it look like to work with communities to figure out um, Within, you know, within their systems and then larger governance systems, ways to sustainably extract from the ocean, um, moved from oceans to, to people to environmental education, and, um, and then moved into supply chain sustainability, really trying to grapple with what it looks like to make change on the ground, but through the big companies that are ultimately driving so much of change through their purchasing power. Um, and what I started to see a lot of the work that I was doing in supply chain sustainability was in, in Latin America and Mexico and Guatemala. And we spent a lot of time with companies thinking about how to protect forest through their supply chain leverage. But what I started to see was companies really making a, an expansion of those commitments to include net zero 
as they were getting more and more pressure around climate, and that became a more and more salient issue. And so they expanded from forest protection into really thinking about restoration through supply chains, right? Thinking about agroforestry, thinking about more sustainable practices in farms in general. And that's how I started making my way into the restoration world. And then I actually, I got a a call from someone that I went to graduate school with in 2020, Tom Crowther, who authored this big paper estimating how many trees we could restore on earth and what the carbon sequestration potential of that would be, which is huge. Um, And he called me up and he was like, I have this idea. Um, You know, we're going to build an organization to basically try to figure out how we get the science out into the hands of people who can do something with it and um, bring transparency to all the work that's happening and really enable a global movement, um, you want to come on board. And so a few months later, I moved from Mexico City to Zurich in Switzerland, and um, and here I am. So I helped spin Restore, and I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute, but helped spin this new organization out of the science lab, um, Crowther Lab at, at ETH Zurich, the university here. And and here I am. That's a great a great story, and you've seen multiple ecosystems, multiple different perspectives. And so let's go jump into Restore in particular. You alluded to its mission, but want to give you a chance to just share what is its mission, what's the problem it's trying to solve, um, and is it a nonprofit, a for profit? Mm-hmm. Just curious to hear a little bit more about Restore. Of course. So Restore was born at the end of 2020. We are a digital hub for nature, so we're uniting people and projects around the world who are restoring and conserving nature and connecting them to the resources that they need to succeed and to scale. Um, The fundamental belief is that we can move faster together. And I guess just to take a step back, and I, I mean, I think that we all know this, but sometimes it's worth saying it up front. People are destroying nature fast. You know, collectively as humanity, we've managed to to take away a lot of um, the natural ecosystems that we ultimately rely on. And it's a big problem for existential reasons like climate and biodiversity loss and food security and global pandemics. And it's also a really big challenge for local reasons, clean water and clean air and flood prevention. Um, But there's this huge opportunity in restoring nature that really opens up this world of possibility. And, you know, restoring nature ultimately, if we think about it in the most simplest terms, just means returning nature to a healthy state. That includes a whole spectrum of different ecosystems, a whole spectrum of actions. It doesn't mean having everything be perfectly pristine and non-human touched anymore, but Again, it can be many, many things. And the impact of restoration, as I say, is huge. And if we can do it at scale, it's it's completely game-changing. So if we take just one ecosystem that we're familiar with, forests, um, the, the stat, and this comes from our founder, Tom Crowther, that um, many people have grabbed onto is a trillion trees. Scientists have estimated that we could restore a trillion trees on Earth and that those trillion trees would capture about 30% of the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Um, can also prevent about 60% of the species extinctions that were uh, on track 
to to see today and also improves food security for over a billion people. Um, and again, that's just forests. That's not talking about grasslands and wetlands and peatlands and, and everything else. Um, and so that's a very long way of saying that this big opportunity has spurred big commitments from governments and from companies to restore nature, but turning those top-down commitments into real bottom-up grassroots action is hard. And that's why we exist. We're really trying to empower work that's happening all over the world with this underlying infrastructure that I can talk you through um, that allows us to bring together the data, the people that are needed to do this at scale. Um, we're set up as a nonprofit. So we, and I can get into that if, if you're interested, but um, number of reasons we chose to have that, that designation for the way that we're trying to make change. I'd love to dive more into that, that model you were discussing. And, you know, I understand that there's uh, an aspect of increasing transparency through monitoring and data, connecting funders with projects and other activities. Could you talk just a little bit more around the how? Like what kinds yeah. of projects, what kind of funders, what kind of data, what kind of decisions are you helping to facilitate? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start us off with um, a, a particular user. I'll just kind of take you through a stereotypical user journey. Um, and, and I'll use a, a, um, a particular site in Costa Rica that I'm familiar with because it's close to where I grew up. Um, but basically, imagine Melvin. Melvin is a landowner in Costa Rica. He has a lot of pasture land. Um, there's some forest on that, but most of it has been lost over the decades to cattle. If Melvin goes on to restore what he can do is draw a shape around his pasture um, and Restore will automatically calculate for him a range of different data that's associated with that particular piece of land. And we can get into that data piece. Um, but for example, it will calculate predictions around native trees and shrubs. It will calculate estimates of carbon sequestration potential. It will give baseline information on precipitation and temperature for the region. So that becomes a starting point. And then Melvin can register that project, um, that boundary of his pasture on Restore. So he can say, this is the support I'm looking for. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's technical, maybe it's collaboration. He can add photos, add additional context to the work that he's doing, and then publish that. And just like that, you know, his pasture has become a potential project in the big restoration community. Um, and then if, if you're a funder, what we've done is built a search system, and we continue to build this out to make it better and better over time, that allows you to search through and look for projects that meet criteria of interest from a philanthropic perspective or an investment perspective. And so in Melvin's case, he's actually a user who was found by a company looking to support restoration projects that were balancing both carbon and biodiversity benefits and was actually funded um, when, when he was found through Restore. Um, and so that's sort of the, again, stereotypical journey of, of what happens. And Restore Now has brought together over 100,000 different sites around the world where people are doing work just like Melvin at, at many, many different scales. And so when we're talking about the kind of the data, the connection, um, Melvin, as I say, 
gets connected to data, he gets connected to neighbors who might be doing similar work, who he can learn from, and then he has the opportunity to connect to the dollar side of things. Um, and in that way, the more we build out the community on the platform, the more we're able to connect people to the things that they need to really succeed. That makes a lot of sense and is such an interesting and, and compelling model. So you are you know, two to three years into this journey of building Restore. And so as you look to the future, what do you see as some of the most important drivers of growth for the organization over the next couple of years? Do you think it's unlocking more landowners, getting onto the platform or um, on the ground capacity, or simply bringing more funders into the space who are looking to support these types of opportunities? Yeah, it's it's very much a chicken and egg question, right? Um, so you really have to do both. I've you know I've started to think about the rideshare analogy, you know, like the early days of Uber, Lyft. Like you really need to have um, both sides of that from a marketplace perspective. And I should clarify, we're not a marketplace in that you cannot invest directly through the platform. But what we do is we provide sort of like a clearinghouse of all of these these many different projects. So you really can't do one without the other. We focused first on practitioners, on really those people doing work on the ground, the Melvins of the world, because um, you can't have money until you have projects. And because those projects actually have many needs that are not money, that can encourage them to join Restore, to join the community, and then make it easier to bring the funder side of it. But we really need to scale those two sides of it um, in parallel in order for it to be fast and impactful. And just on the other side of the equation or the, the other side of the marketplace, who is Melvin talking to? Who are the who are the typical funders that are using the platform today or that you hope would be using the platform yeah. in the future? Yep. So a range. Um, one of the things that that we're, you know, that I mean, I'm sure you see this as well in the space is like there's a lot of really early stage projects and Melvin is, is a good example of it that cannot get off the ground without philanthropy. They're just not ready. You know, they're not at the scale where they could be discovered by a carbon developer and, you know, be ready to to enter that journey for carbon certification and and finance through that. And so we see donors um, who are interested in making philanthropic contributions to restoration using the platform. We do see like small early stage developers, um, using Restore as well to find prospects. So I've heard more and more from, you know, often actually carbon startups who are like, oh yeah, I use Restore to to search for prospects in East Africa. And that's actually how I found the project that I ended up working with. Um, So I think right now, because so many of the projects are those early stage projects, that's what we're seeing is like either philanthropy or um, early stage funders that are really willing to put in the capacity building and technical support that's needed to scale projects. Um, But as we grow and as we bring a larger and larger, I would say more complete kind of version of what's on the platform, we start to see larger projects joining as well. Um, And so we want to keep expanding in that way because ultimately our key theory of change is that the more the more we're able to unite this space, the more learning can happen, not just between projects, but from a larger scientific perspective by 
doing meta-analyses of what's happening, what's working, um, et cetera. And so we really need to reach that scale of, you know, all of these projects in a single place um, with the ability to interact and learn. So are you, Clara, encouraging other project developers or NGOs or um, to who have projects or who are starting to work with landowners to enroll their projects on the on the platform um and or is it really directly going to the landowners themselves i imagine in certain contexts um you know actually having worked at ncx knowing that certain landowners maybe are are more um geared towards work you know going online entering their information onto a platform maybe others in different uh contexts maybe not don't have the same capability to easily access a platform and, and find their property bound. So I'm just curious how you, who do you work with as the, for the users and is it just landowners or do you work with nonprofits who connect to them and, and product and developers I'm as well? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked because absolutely. Um, those, you know, like first and even second kind of tiers of aggregation are incredibly important for building out um, this network. So often it will be, a farmer's cooperative, it will be an NGO, could be a small NGO, you know, an NGO that's bringing together agroforestry farmers in Honduras, for example, it could be WWF. WWF is a big user of ours who are bringing on their local NGO partners and then many of the landowners that they're working with. And that's been a big way that we've been able to build out the community. Um, and, And they offer you know, just like NCX are doing a lot of the work that projects need. You know, we we aren't a one-stop shop for everything that that a project needs to get off the ground, to get funded, to keep doing work. What we are is a hub where we can say, this is where you might want to go if you're in, you know, stage X. And so we absolutely want all of those different pieces of of the ecosystem coming together. You don't have to be a landowner to use the platform. That makes a lot of sense. So one other thing we'd love to understand both about Restore, but then also just your views in general, with the opportunities coming on to Restore, do you scan for quality or apply any kind of filter? And then zooming out from that, we'd be so curious to hear a little bit about digital monitoring, reporting, and verification. Yeah. Obviously, I think some of our listeners are familiar with the concept of MRV, but how do you think about DMRV and what is its particular role today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So a quick point on the quality question, Restore is very much a user-generated community. So we have purposely made barrier to entry onto the platform quite low. Um, Projects are self-disclosing information about where they're working, about what they're doing. And of course, we are overlaying geospatial data that allows anyone to see what that actually looks like and whether change is happening. Um, And we are, you know, building in that sort of geospatial quality check. But as we'll get into as we talk about digital MRV, that's only a piece of the equation. So we were very much about how do we get people on board? And that means allowing people to come register, say what they're doing and using transparency as the ultimate, you know, 
system of quality and really kind of community enforcing in that way of like, wait, can I, is change actually happening? Do I know what's happening here? And being able to use that as, as we think about the recommendations we make to any sort of funder, what is the track record that we can see about the project or the organization that they're connected to um, through their history of land use change on Restore. So digital MRV is this huge wave of already established and emerging technologies whose goal it is to make monitoring, reporting, and verification cheaper, faster, more scalable, more reliable. I, I think it actually helps to, to think about what analog MRV looks like in order to conceptualize digital MRV. So I'm going to give you an example from an assessment that I did when I was working in Mexico, in Chiapas. We were doing an HCS assessment, which is a particular forest assessment for the world of no deforestation in commodities. Basically, you have to decide what is forest and what's not forest when you make a commitment to protecting forest. And it sounds kind of obvious, but you reach points where you have super degraded areas that you may not know. Does Are we going to count this as a forest or not? So it's basically a forest maturity estimate that uses carbon in the no deforestation world. And so we had to look at this big landscape and figure out which parts of this count as forest and which parts don't. And the way that we did that is we selected a whole bunch of random points um, on a map, and then we drove to those points and we had to figure out the landowner to talk to about accessing their land and getting permission. And sometimes we'd have to walk multiple kilometers, macheteing our way through the woods to get to the specific point that we had determined was the random point across the landscape. And then we'd set up a plot, right? It'd be maybe a 50 meter plot and we'd have a center point and we'd have to go around to every tree and we'd have to measure what the diameter of that was at breast height, we would have to measure the canopy cover. We would bring a botanist along to identify the species. Um, and so after 10 days of this, we visited maybe 15 different sites covered in mud, covered in bug bites. And so it's beautiful, wonderful. It takes a lot of time. Um, and so digital MRV is all about making that or some other version of that happen faster with technology. Um, so it includes, you know, the use of satellite data that helps with land cover classification, deforestation alerts, canopy cover gain detection. Now it includes LIDAR, drones, bioacoustics, measuring sounds and getting estimates of diversity that way. There's a whole suite of cell phone apps that are emerging to help do things like measure individual trees or estimate canopy cover in faster ways. And some of these have been well studied now and there's good comparisons to their analog and we get a sense of what's working well and what's not. Some of them aren't. And I think that's that contributes to the sort of Wild West feeling of this space, um, which is we don't always know if, you know, which pieces of digital MRV are better or not than their analog equivalent. And we haven't systematically thought through what are the trade-offs around quality and scale associated with some of those things. Could you talk a bit more around what the data sources are that you're using on Restore? What yes. sort of resolution? How has that evolved? What yes. are you actually measuring? Yeah. So 
The focus that we've taken at Restore is to make the best available scientific and monitoring data sets easy to access and understand. There's so much out there already, and there's so much that continues to emerge that we've really decided that our role is not creating new data sets, but taking what's there and making it really easy for Melvin when he draws that shape around his plot of land to get information about it. And so it's important to caveat by saying there's often better local data that we want those projects to be able to connect with. We also want to give them a really easy, quick starting point that becomes a reference globally when we want to compare projects. So broadly, I would divide the data that we host into two categories, contextual data that actually helps us just understand what's going on in an area, a snapshot. And, and so that includes things like, well, what biome is it? Um, what's the temperature? What's the rainfall in this area? We have um, a feature that actually we've been working to improve, and there'll be a release of this very soon, that is predictions of trees and shrubs, and which are invasive, and which are, are native, and which actually are endangered and therefore might be more interesting uh, to pay attention to. So that's the contextual set of data. And then there's monitoring data, which helps show change over time. Um, and you asked a bit about resolution. So I think it's important when we think about resolution to remember that there's multiple aspects to that. There's temporal resolution with time and there's spatial resolution. And so some of the key monitoring data sets that we have on the platform today, NDVI, which is a measure of greenness. Um, basically, it, it can work on a number of underlying um, data sets. We've chosen to run it on Landsat data, which is 30 by 30 meters resolution, because it goes back further in time. We could actually do that also on Sentinel data, which is 10 meters by 10 meters it wouldn't go back as far. So those are some of the trade-offs that you have to think about. It, that is more useful in early stage projects when change is just happening, but not so much in, in detecting long-term change because um, after a certain point, the greenness saturates. Uh, we have a data set that's net primary productivity, NPP. That's a much coarser resolution data set, 500 by 500 meter resolution. Um, that comes from NASA satellites called MODIS. And that is, you know, really for landscape scale evaluations of carbon accumulation. So when you, when you look at areas, for example, across many farms where you've been working to bring more trees into the landscape, you can really see how carbon is accumulating um, there, which gives you a really good sense of, of big picture progress. And actually, there's kind of a sister data set to that carbon data set, which shows you how much water is cycling through the landscape. And I love it because when you look at big sites where you're seeing the carbon return through trees, you also see more and more water moving through the system, more evapotranspiration, which is very cool. Um, at the risk of getting, you know, too, too technical and listing too many data sets here, I'll, I'll just mention two more. One is actually just a visual imagery data set. Um, so 50 centimeter resolution, which really allows you to see sort of tree by tree what's happening. And so that's just terrific when you want a visual inspection of change. That is one of the most popular data sets on the platform because people can just look and see like, oh yeah, the trees came back here. Um, 
And then coming very soon, a new suite of biomass data sets um, that come both from the European Space Agency and also um, NASA, a, a product called JEDI, um, which is being transferred on, onto Landsat data now. So in any case, I, you know, that should give you a sense of just how much is out there. And um, we, we want to make that much, much easier to access. And, and we are always looking for, okay, what's the be best next data set out there that we can pull onto the platform and make easily accessible? And it's really important to say, if it wasn't clear already from the beginning when I was framing um, the, the piece around kind of our focus on transparency and open access, um, ev every data set that we have on the platform today is public, free, and open. So we really want to lean in as much as possible to what can be accessed for everyone for free and, and therefore what can be seen by everyone, used by everyone. And that doesn't mean there's not a space for all of the incredible work that's happening to develop new proprietary data sets in the digital MRV space. But we do want to make sure that when there is public free and open data available, that it's being used before people are paying for stuff. And just to follow up on that, Clara, what, what do you hope people are using that data for? What do you hope that they're doing with it? For example, I'm curious how Melvin would know that he has a good potential restoration project by looking at those measurements. Are you incorporating education into the platform to help landowners or funders know what to do with that information that you have there? I'm just curious to understand what you hope people do with that information. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there's a lot more that we can do there to educate users about what to do with the data. Um, we hear this feedback a lot. One of our big teams actually, um, I mean, we're still a relatively small organization. We're 25 people, but about a third of our team is doing outreach to projects all the time. Um, and so they're hearing like, what's working? What's not working? What are people understanding? And we know that there's more we can do to help people guide um, through the data. But you can see, for example, very clearly there's a data set that offers carbon restoration potential as one of the kind of key bar graphs that we show. So that's a really easy thing to be able to look at and say like, oh, okay, I'm at this number and I have this much potential for recovered carbon there. Um, the species list is another example of kind of a very practical thing. And people have been kind of asking for the update that I mentioned um, for a long time because it's, it's a key challenge they're always facing is making decisions about species in a particular area. Um, so those are a few examples of how they might use that today. Um, a lot of the visual monitoring, well, but like both the visual and then um, the analytic, but the kind of graphs that we've put together, monitoring data that does show change over time, users do realize that they can use that to show funders. Um, and so we see that more and more, you know, projects just linking their sites on Restore um, into funding reports and things like that, because it's just a, a simple way of showing progress. What's the geographic scope of Restore? Is there any particular focus? Um, obviously, thinking about the developing country perspective, are there distinctions that you see in applying some of this DMRV and technological tools in developed countries versus developing? Hmm. So we have we have a global focus. Um, We've purposefully chosen, and kind of going back to what data we show on the platform, we've perfect pur purposefully chosen data sets that are global in coverage. So for any given 
place on earth, you can see the same kinds of data. Um, that means that we have projects joining from many, many different places. We have projects from over 140 different countries on the platform today, but some of the big clusters are in Brazil, are in Costa Rica, are in Indonesia, more and more in India. Um, so, and I, and I think that is a combination of things um, where we have people and so where we've done more outreach, where there are government programs that are encouraging restoration. So in Brazil, built into the forest code are requirements for restoration, which means there's a lot of action there. Costa Rica has payment for ecosystem services programs. We actually partner with the government of Costa Rica to bring those projects on to restore and, and show those transparently. So there's places where those conditions make it easier for projects to get on board and get off the ground in general. And then I think partially it's just a network effect thing. And so as we think about our own growth strategy, there's a certain kind of organic component to that in terms of there's there's one project and then when the next person finds out about Restore and they realize, oh my gosh, there's someone like 50 kilometers away who's also doing this work. Yeah, I'm going to get on board. That means that we end up with these little nodes and coverage there. Um, so you can hear by the countries that I've listed that there is a large global South focus, um, even though there still are, I mean, sites across US, sites across Europe. But um, I would say what that means in terms of a few different ways to think about what that means in relationship to digital MRV. One is access. Um, and, I, and, and even before we talk about cost, one of the things that I've come to learn about the open access space in the satellite world is that it's very dependent on where people are flying satellites for money, right? So the high resolution data set that I mentioned that allows you to really like look at change, that is really biased toward the global north because governments and companies will pay to have the commercial satellites image the global north more often than they will image the global south. And so when it ends up getting open source down the line, there's just more data available in the north. And that means that when you look at when there are images available, you get much more consistency in the north than in the south. And when you add on to that the fact that there's a lot of clouds in the tropics, and that makes the images that come by... Um, just you you less frequently get a clear image, there's a big disparity there. So that's one of the considerations is just what are the things that have been built into the way that monitoring happens and how does that impact what ends up getting open sourced and what's available and what is the cost? And that's another big piece of it is as we think about all of this is just cost. Um, so, you know, I've, I've mentioned that Restore is focused on public free and open data, but as I said, there's many, many important MRV technologies that aren't free. And that is a big concern for governments and for projects locally. What are they, what are they kind of committing themselves to if they're buying into a service? What does that mean for their own digital sovereignty? What are they being asked to do? What can they choose to do when we're thinking about international agreements and international markets? So a lot of different complexities that come into play as we think about the kind of internationalization of nature markets um, and, and the broader, the broader nature-based solution space.
Yeah, that's fascinating, Clara. It brings to mind a bigger question about equity in access to information about if a lot of the deforestation and restoration needs are actually in the global south. And that's where the highest um, need from a biodiversity uh, perspective, from livelihoods of people, depending on nature perspective, it really does bring a big question about how can we make sure that information, if it's being centered as key to making these projects successful, how can we make sure that those communities and governments have the same access to information if that isn't commercially the same motivation or incentive to measure that? I hadn't thought about the equity implications of that from a DMRV perspective. Yeah, I hadn't honestly until we looked at, we did an analysis of how many images we had going back in time for each of the sites on Restore. And we just created a heat map of it. And it was like, wait a second, (laughs) why do we have all these red points with very few images in the global South? And then we just sort of started connecting the dots. And yeah, it feels obvious in retrospect, but I don't think we always name these things. Yeah. Um, Well, let's jump into the actual restoration projects themselves. So as CEO of Restore, you learn about and see a lot of different types of restoration projects. Curious to hear your perspective on lessons learned. Um, You know, what features do the most successful projects have in common? And can you share a specific example of a particular success story that sticks out for you? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've really loved about seeing the Restore community grow is that we're seeing so many different kinds of ecosystems, so many different kinds of actual actions. So I think we often think about forests, we often think about planting trees, but we're seeing communities where we're thinking about wetland rehabilitation and really interesting, actually, wetland and peatland projects in Iceland, for example. Um, And So I think it's coastal projects where we're seeing seagrass restoration. So I think for me, one of the big take-homes is just to remember that there's all of these different kinds um, of of projects happening around the world, and they're all part of creating a larger kind of restoration economy. Um, Broad brushstrokes, the most successful projects are projects that are holistic in nature. So they're thinking about carbon, people, biodiversity. They involve the local community if they're not run by the local community. And they have long-term opportunities for economic impact. So I'll actually take us back to Melvin for a moment, um, who I walked us through that, that journey in the beginning. I mentioned that, you know, Melvin can draw a boundary of his pasture on Restore. There's some kind of key questions there. Why would he do that, right? Why would he choose to make the decision to restore that land? And how is he going to afford to do that in the long run? Maybe he gets some philanthropic funding up front to make that happen, but what does that actually turn into? So Melvin is actually part of a network of communities along the Pacific coast of Costa Rica who are coming together to work on a rural tourism project, which is building a trail that connects the central mountain range down to the coast and brings tourism. And so as part of that tourism project, they're building a few different albergues, kind of like 
little um, hotels, hostels to stay in along the way in communities. And they're trying to do as much reforestation along the path as they can because they know that it makes for happier hikers. There's more biodiversity, which means that people are excited to get to see flora and fauna. So there's a real economic um, vision long term for what this can mean for the community. And of course, there's a real cultural element too. I mean, Melvin remembers decades ago when more of the landscape was forest and all of the things that they would do as a family that was actually rooted in that. So I don't mean to say it's all economic, but it's an important piece of the change over time. And so in, in Melvin's case, the funding that he needed to kind of get this project off the ground as part of this network of community members was actually not to plant trees. It was to put up a fence and to put up a, you know, a strong fence that could keep out cattle that were grazing in the larger landscape. And it's his, his pasture is close enough to intact forest that there's actually just a lot of natural regeneration that happens over time and birds fly through and they drop seeds. And so, and there's still a seed bank in the soil. So I, I also really love that example because it shows us that there's often other ways to think about bringing back nature than, than putting a seedling in the ground. Um, so that the he had the short-term funding needs of how do we get the fence up ultimately tie into the long-term income opportunity, which is tourism. And in in many cases for nature projects these days, the long-term income opportunity might be carbon credits, payments for ecosystem services. More and more we're seeing that kind of complexity built into um, payment payment schemes. It could be, you know, selling of sustainable products, but that's really key to the long-term success of these projects. And maybe, maybe flipping it, why, in your opinion, do sometimes projects fail and, and what is there to be learned from that? Mm. So, I mean, the obvious flip sides, and I think, you know, these are the kinds of things that make it into the news. Um, but when we don't include local communities at all, um, and we don't consider local context, there's always blowback eventually one way or another. Um, and that can result in illegal logging over time. It might result in burning an area in order to um, be able to, you know, enter and access or uh, extract fauna or whatever it might be. Um, but it just doesn't work that well when we aren't thinking holistically about an area. We also know, you know, we've seen the perils of thinking about quick kind of reforestation solutions like monoculture um, and monocultures in areas where this, you know, species just aren't suitable. And that often, you know, also makes things more susceptible to, you know, to forest fires, to pests, et cetera. Um, but I also really want to highlight that failures are also often about bad luck. Um, they're about, you know, taking a bet and experimenting and it not quite working out. It might be that there was flooding or an extra long dry season. Um, these things are happening more and more with climate change. And we need to encourage and in some way celebrate that kind of failure. Not failure because we didn't think through, you know, the project design and we didn't you know, really think about what it meant to to build a community-driven project, but failure because we were experimenting. Um, failure because no one really knows what it's going to look like to build restoration into a future where it's warmer. And so it's, it's really key that we don't stigmatize that. Um, 
and that we elevate those learnings. And that is a huge piece of the motivation of the community aspect of Restore, of, of why we believe that the hub nature of what we're doing is, is so important, like above and beyond the data, is that there's so much knowledge held and what each project is doing. And that needs to get exchanged faster if we really think about what needs to happen to scale. I have one quick follow-up there, and I'm just thinking about the data question and this obvious conundrum of creating projects in the context of a changing climate, and the fact that whether historical data only tells us so much about the future. So does Restore have data looking at the predictive side of climate change and some of the vulnerabilities that may exist on land today? Yeah, we will soon. Um, and actually, if, if, if you or anyone listening also has ideas about other data sets that we can incorporate, I'd be really interested in that. But I'll take the species, um, the, the species list piece as an example. So I mentioned that we have this tool, we've been working on fixing it, that helps to predict species, trees and shrubs specifically for a given area. This is a modeled data set, which is part of the reason why it's required a lot of you know, careful thinking before we release it. That means that it takes into account where trees are today um, and, and what has been observed, but it also overlays information around you know, temperature and precipitation and pH of the soil and a whole range of other um, climatic and contextual data sets in order to be able to make predictions about where those species um, occur outside of where they've been seen, right? Where could they occur? Um, and that's kind of cl a, a classic species distribution um, model approach. Now, what that means is it, you can then change a parameter like temperature and update the model. And you have to be, you know, really careful about how you do that. You always need to be thinking about local context, bringing in local expert opinion, but it's a really powerful tool to then be able to have a conversation about, okay, you know, this is, you know, this, this white pine is actually really predicted to do, to do well in this place um, in the future, or really predicted, I should say, to be able to occur in this place in the future. Um, so any model data allows us to add in that kind of um, climatic component by shifting around those variables. Amazing. Yeah, super exciting and, and definitely uh, definitely something to, to dig into after, after the show. Um, just jumping back to this, this idea of, of thinking holistically about a landscape, would love your thoughts on this intersection between restoration and agriculture or other productive mm. land use and how you balance the two? What's the role of sustainable supply chains in the context of restoration? And yeah, how, how do you think about this? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, ultimately, and actually the Society for Ecological Restoration has a nice diagram that shows kind of the restorative continuum as they talk about it, which includes, you know, on the one hand, much more kind of human modified ecosystems, but bringing back in services like carbon sequestration and soil, right? And water retention and flood prevention, and then the continuum toward kind of natural, less human impacted ecosystems. And so 
restoration exists along that whole continuum. And agriculture is a big piece of that. There's a lot that we can do with agricultural systems and that people are experimenting with more and more, um, which involves, you know, bringing trees into agricultural systems in an agroforestry context, which involves, you know, no-till or or permaculture, um, reducing inputs. And those, (laughs) they're, it's really exciting potential as we think about climate, as we think about biodiversity, and actually as we think about often farmer incomes in rural places, but there are also many complexities depending on the, you know, the scale of what you're working at and mechanization that's been built in already and systems of inputs that we have. And often there's actually a decrease in profits in the short term because of the transition you have to go through if you stop using a lot of fertilizers. And so there's big gaps that finance has to help fill. So there's a lot of um, hurdles to overcome systemically as we think about the transition. But there are many, many ways that we can bring restorative practices into food production um, that that help us feed people and restore nature. Um, that said, there are, you know, we, we know some key things like it takes a lot more land to produce meat. And so, you know, one of the big things that we can do in order to reduce the land that we need to feed people is to reduce the amount of meat that we eat, especially certain kinds of meat and dairy. Um, And so I I don't think, I don't mean to paint it as like, and everything is a a win-win scenario. There there are hard trade-offs that we have to make as we think about um, feeding people and also taking care of all of the other kind of pieces of of human well-being and and non-human well-being, if that's something that you, you also care to center. Yeah, that makes so much sense and is very well said. So you've already alluded to this with respect to how we might need to, for instance, shift investor mindsets. But what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about nature-based solutions that the public has or that consumers have or that other key stakeholder groups around the table maintain today? And, you know, what do we need to do about them? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest ones that I see in the news are the sort of tendency to oversimplify, right? So thinking that nature-based solutions are all about carbon or that nature-based solutions are all about planting trees. I think that tends to be the, it's easy to simplify and I understand why we simplify. You know, I started this by talking about how many trees we could restore because it's an easy thing to say. And so we all fall into that trap, but it also has turned into, a you know, big misconceptions and and then criticisms about the space that I think require much more nuance. So then if that public misconception might be one barrier, I'm curious, how do you think that restoration and conservation projects could scale faster? What are the biggest barriers to these projects today? Is it public misconception and misunderstanding or is it something else? So ultimately it's about well, <laughs> let me let me take a step back for a second. It's always hard to give a single answer. So some of the biggest barriers to scale, one is finance, you know, that and we, we've talked about that. And public perception contributes to the broader financial conditions, right? So we're seeing right now, because of a lot of the high-profile reporting that's been done kind of bringing into question some of the quality of nature-based projects, 
we're seeing a, a big hesitance to invest in nature-based projects. So those things are are always intertwined. But we absolutely need more finance, and we need more finance across the board. We, you know, we've talked about kind of the need for philanthropy as a way of bringing in a lot of early stage grassroots projects. We need more investment in a whole suite of nature-based solutions that will have long-term um, economic opportunity for communities that are implementing them. Um, we need to be thinking about this, you know, in big ways like the the recent debt for nature swap that happened in Ecuador. So lots of different ways that we need to be bringing money to the table here to make this, this possible. Um, we need to be doing a lot more learning together. I, you know, I think I kind of talked about that one and, and I don't want to um, beat a dead horse there to use a terrible analogy, but we, we can be doing a lot more in the restoration space if we, if we learned more from mistakes and we didn't repeat those mistakes so often. And so figuring out efficient ways to collaborate and to have that meta-learning from a restoration science perspective is really important. Um, there's also, you know, one of the, the key challenges as we think about the finance piece of this is the reporting burdens that exist around current systems like carbon certification. And those make it very difficult for small projects to get involved. It makes it really hard for there to be kind of grassroots component to what it looks like. And, and that's key for scale. And so there's the sort of catch-22 of the the questions that are being asked right now around quality of nature-based solutions and then what it actually, um, what that turns into in terms of increased reporting burdens, which makes it harder to scale and actually harder to make it more equitable um, in terms of what we uh, are, are implementing. So those things all kind of roll up together. I'm afraid that's not a very succinct answer to all of this, but it, there really are these kind of interacting factors that we have to tackle together as we think about scale. No, I, I think, Clara, you're, you're totally right that these different um, issues are intertwined and the quality piece leads to more financing, but there's also the questions around what do you need to measure and report on and what, are, what does that mean are of requiring of communities? And so I think it's a great point. And the one of the things I'm hopeful for with Restore, right, is that you, given that you have a database of 100,000 projects and are a nonprofit, it seems to me that you'd be in a great position then to share those learnings and um, highlight ways that the community can do better and ways that um, projects can be successful or um, lessons learned. So I'm curious to see what you all are working on on that front and what comes out on that front, given the position that you play in the market. I, I imagine that that could be a really powerful contribution from you all. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And that's absolutely the goal. And, and it's the reason we decided that our particular role should be as a nonprofit because there's a public good aspect of what we're doing that really needs to be there in order for all of the different actors in the ecosystem to make the money that they need off of this space and to actually scale it. Well said. Well, so we've come to the end of our time and there are so many more questions that I wish we could dig into, uh, but we'll end this episode as we end all episodes with a lightning round. So to start off, what's your favorite carbon sink? It's really hard, but I think right now mangroves, I know they're really popular, but at, at, at this particular point, but 
there's a lot of carbon in them and they're, they've got crazy roots and sometimes they shoot salt out of their leaves and they're just awesome. There's a reason they're so popular. Uh, mangroves <laughs> are, are superheroes of carbon sequestration. So great answer. A favorite book? So I'm going to go The Poisonwood Bible, Barbara Kingsolver. Um, I am reading Ministry for the Future finally right now, which I have to say I'm really enjoying. Um, but Barbara Kingsolver is an, an all-time favorite of mine. If you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale NCS? Something that makes it possible for all of those tiny projects that I manage to have the credible progress reporting that they need to really get involved in deep ways in the broader financial um, opportunities that exist in the nature-based space. What gives you hope? So many people doing incredible work around the world. Um, it's one of the best things about working at Restore is I get to see all of these projects that are joining us all the time. We had almost 400 new users join us this week. Um, so that's 400 people who are doing restoration work either individually or through an organization around the world. And we see that week after week after week. And it's, it, we know that that potential is there. It's incredibly exciting. And what's your prediction for the biggest natural climate solutions headline of 2023? There have been so many negative headlines this year about carbon credits and the nature-based space in general. So I think my aspirational headline is something about, you know, Vera announces transform standards that now include ecosystem service and services. And there's been a huge win. Clearly, I should not be a reporter or a journalist, but we really need that positive headline. And that positive headline needs to be about the, the holistic way that we're now seeing nature-based solutions and that we're rewarding nature-based solutions. Second to the need for a positive headline, uh, I'm hopeful that there will be more than one coming out later this year. Um, well, thank you so much, Clara, for your time, uh, your insights, and the great work that you're doing. I uh, hope our listeners will take some time to check out Restore, and if they have restoration projects or are looking to fund restoration projects, get involved. So thanks so much, Clara. Thanks so much. It was so fun. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.